What's up, guys, and welcome back to the MMA meeting. I hope you guys have an amazing Monday, great weather, and I'm really happy because I'm finally getting a heavy bag installed outside, actually, in my backyard, so I'm really happy about that. First thing I want to say is the podcast is now going to be open on pretty much every platform. All the links are going to be in the description box for my podcast episode on YouTube. All the links are going to be right there, so you can just go right to them. Or if it's easier just to go to the platform, you know, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you go to, you could just search it up if it's easier. Search up The Weasel. You could search up MMA Meeting. Either of those, and the podcast should pop up. And if you do, make sure to follow it, subscribe, whatever you have to do to get the update whenever another episode comes up. And it will really help the channel. So Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, they're everywhere now. So the link will be in the description box of my youtube video as a starting point or you could just search it up if it's easier for you to do that but uh mma has been pretty crazy so first thing i wanted to start it off with and it just happened so it's fresh in my memory conor mcgregor's take on the greatest fighters of all time so he put anderson silva's number one he put himself as number two he put gsp's number three and john jones as number four Very interesting list. So let's go over the tweets really quick, just for the people that didn't get to see them. So quote, GOAT thread. The array of finishes across two divisions with champion status in one. Anderson Silva is number one MMA GOAT. My array of finishes across three divisions with champion status in two. I'm number two, if not tied number one. However, still active number one is fully secured by career end and easily. GSP is in at three, much less array of finishes, but champion status in two. He is far behind though. He left 170 after damage taken and a questionable decision. Never re-engaged the 170 pound weight class successors, bottled the Anderson fight, only moved when one-eyed fighter presented, played safe. John is four, maybe tied three, more array of finishes than three, and still active but champion status is just one. Reasons, multiple lackluster decision performances plus questionable decision win in his last fight. Attempting to safe play, heavyweight entry, and avoiding its champion. I didn't mention, I didn't mention PED results on multiple entrants, even though that makes me the clear number one MMA GOAT, along with still being active. Although it shames as well as puts all runs plus finishes in complete doubt, I've snored multiple juice heads. A true GOAT must do it all. Clarity on Silva's earlier number one spot. Most stylistic finishes on resume. Front kicks to the face, up elbow, outside the UFC. Tie plum knees, landing to broken facial bones. Long list of jaw-dropping finishes. Myself, Anderson, have the most exciting, important finishes in the sport. And I'm only warming up. One more on George, John decision that will clear why I originally gave George number three and John number four. A lot of John's opponents were Anderson Silva's 185-pound opponents but the array of stoppages were not there, or nowhere near Anderson's despite the weight advantage to do so, unquote. What? <laughs> Confusion aside, the criteria he seems to be going on is performances and finishes and fighting in multiple divisions, but it seems to be really reliant on finishing ability. If you just take out career accomplishments, take out title shots and title wins and all that stuff, take away title defenses, which is ironically, he left that out completely, never even once thought about title defense, If you just scored by finishing opponents and stuff like that, yes, you could say Anderson is number one and Conor McGregor is number two if you're not taking in the PED results of fighters. In a way, looking at his perspective, I do agree with him. But what I don't agree with is his criteria. I don't go by that. I don't go by just finishes. I go by everything. And I put it in like an order. So my number one, when I look at the greatest, is competition beaten because that levels out everything else. If you have great competition under your resume, everything you do gets magnified right? Title defenses, title shots, 
win streaks, longevity, finishing opponents, all that stuff makes it even better and magnifies all of those values. That's why I put competition beaten at the absolute number one spot. So it, let me just say my list really quick. I got GSP's number one. Let's take out PEDs because Connor did here, which I don't do. I include PED results, which is why I can't put Anderson Silva or John Jones on the list. But let's say we take that out. If that's the case, I have GSP's number one. I got John Jones as number two. They're very close. You can exchange either of them. After this, it might be a little bit of a hot take. But I actually put Demetrius Johnson as number three. Number four, I put Fedor Milenko. And number five, I put Jose Aldo. That might be a hot take right there. Jose Aldo above Anderson Silva. Where's Anderson Silva? I will say this. I believe Jose Aldo's competition is stronger than Anderson's. I don't think that could be too argued against. And he had almost as long as the title defense streak. He was undefeated for 10 years, which Anderson was not. And he was doing it against better competition. And Anderson's later losses. You have to take that into account as well. You're talking about of all time. When you talk about of all time, you got to know even when they're on their decline, right? Anderson's recent loss streak and not doing too well, that goes against him as well, as well as losing in the past before he got into the UFC, right? Josie Aldo's biggest tainted loss was that Conor McGregor one, right? And that was a big one. But everything else, yes, he got shut down by Max Holloway in the second fight. He normally doesn't lose that badly. Anderson usually gets finished in his losses. He gets finished in the first round, second round. He's gotten submitted before. He's gotten finished in many different ways. So I say Josie Aldo's number five above Anderson. I put Anderson's number six. So when you look at Conor McGregor's here, Look what GSP did. He put GSP as number three. GSP is pretty much done what Conor has done in his career, but at a higher level. He's defeated three generation of fighters. He's went up a weight class. Yes, Conor went up two weight classes, even though he was a huge featherweight. He's a good size 155er. At 170, he fought essentially 155ers, right? Yes, you can say that you fought 170, but these guys aren't actually the big 170ers. Nate Diaz is what, two and two, two and three, three and three or something like that at uh, welterweight? Donald Cerrone did pretty well, but then he went on a loss streak at welterweight. It's not the same kind of thing. I honestly put those guys that Conor has been like their 155 wins. In a way, it's a little bit different because they're not cutting that much weight. So it does impact it a bit. It's not the same kind of thing. But those aren't your average 170 years. So I think it's a bit conflated. But other than finishing opponents and how he's done it, Conor clearly is above GSP in that level. GSP has done everything better than Conor McGregor. More wins. A title defense, let alone nine. He also won two belts, and he's never lost that middleweight. It's crazy to even see GSP with the number three next to his name. And Jones with his performances and questionable decisions and stuff like that. I can see he has had a knock against him, and the fact that he fought a lot of 185ers, or guys that should have been at 185. I can see that against them. Personally, my cousin who's been watching MMA since like be even before I was watching, he used to box and stuff like that. He said that same thing about John Jones. He thinks that John Jones is a little bit overrated when they talk about the GOAT status. Even though he's great, that early run of those older guys he fought, Quentin Jackson, Rashad, Shogun, all those guys, John Jones was pretty much the mop that cleaned the division up, right? He was that new guy that was supposed to beat them. Just like every division has that, look what Chris Wyman did to middleweight. He did the same thing. He cleaned out Anderson Silva, Lioto, Vitor, Mark Munoz, Damian Maia. He cleaned those guys out. It's pretty much what that younger guy has to do. But when the real test comes, which is the guys that are as old as you, your generation, all that stuff, that's when Jones really showed to me and really showed to my cousin, for an example, that he is a great fighter. But that early stretch that they call murderer's row, I can see an argument where that is a bit exaggerated, to be honest. Which is why I put GSP above John Jones, right? Because... GSP was an older time fighter. When he fought Johnny Hendricks, Carlos Condon, and these guys, he was much older. He was a generation before them. 
Yeah, he was beating all of them. They were harder fights because that's just generally how the evolution of the sport goes. Younger guys you fight, the newer the generation is, the harder the matchups are going to be, the harder it's going to be to actually be victorious and keep that record, keep that streak going. But he defeated guys like Matt Hughes, you know what I'm saying? He defeated BJ Penn, defeated those older guys back in the day. And then he fought guys like Nick Diaz, which was his last fight for his own generation. Dan Hardy and Tiago Elvis, all those guys. Jake Shields. And then he went on to defeat the next generation, which he had a very hard time with. But then he went on to beat Michael Bisping in the next weight class. So I believe his competition is actually stronger than John Jones. John Jones' strongest opponent he's ever beaten was DC, and he did it twice. Although both times he tested positive for something. The first one, I can kind of give it to him more. Second one, it's kind of hard to really get past that no contest, even though I saw him beat DC. Again, how much did the PEDs actually affect the fight? We don't know. If it affects the fight, if you could call it PEDs, because it's so unknown how much it helped you in training camp, not just in the fight. In the fight, it probably has the least impact. It helps you so much in training because you don't get hurt. You don't come into the fight injured. You're very confident. It helps your mental stability, which is the most important thing. People just see the... the display of techniques and oh he knocked him out he's probably stronger which he probably was who knows because when does John Jones ever knock out anybody's head kick people before head kick Gustafson a million times and never knocked him out the training and the stuff behind the scenes that we don't see we don't know how much of an impact it actually has it could probably let him train harder train faster train more consistently recover that's why it's harder to even count that John Jones DC2 fight but he did beat him the first time which is a great win even though I believe DC got better after that fight, probably his best win his entire career because it's the best guy he's ever fought, right? GSP's never fought a guy on the level of DC, right? Even though he beat Johnny Hendricks, he beat Matt Hughes back in the... Actually, Matt Hughes is a great opponent for your resume, but then again, Matt Hughes was the previous generation, which I do expect GSP to beat him. He did defeat a prime Jake Shields, who was on a crazy win streak himself. Even though that DC win is a big one for John Jones, look at everybody else John has fought. Do any of them really compare to the guys GSP has fought? It's really tough, right? Another big thing going against GSP when you talk about John Jones is GSP has lost twice, while John Jones really hasn't. And they both have a very questionable decision when under their record. But GSP does usually perform a lot more consistent. He's dominant more consistently than John Jones is. I mean, think about how many fights has GSP been in where he was really struggling in the fight. He wasn't consistently dominating it. You could talk about the Johnny Hendricks fight, of course. His two losses, yes. His first BJ Penn win. Maybe if you want to count the Carlos kind of head kick that almost finished him. But other than that, he dominated the entire fight. Besides that five-second interval, he dominated for the rest of 24 minutes and 55 seconds of that fight. And even against Michael Bisping, yeah, he had a tough time on the ground a little bit, but he was more so dominating that fight. While John Jones has very close fights, like the Gustafson fight, even the DC first one. DC had a couple moments in that one, the second DC fight as well. Everybody knows about the Dominic Reyes fight. OSP had some moments against John Jones as well in their fight. Even Leota Machida back in the day had some really good moments against John Jones. Vitor almost submitted him. The Great Chill Sonnen nearly finished him. You like, you know what I'm saying? It's tough. You can exchange the two. I just put GSP as number one because he had a more consistent, dominant performance. And more importantly, his competition, I believe when you look at the long stretch of it, was better than John Jones. Did you guys hear Mike Perry said he's pretty much done with his coaches and the only one's going to be cornering him is his girlfriend? Get the memes ready, boys. That's going to be a cringe fest. We're going to forget about Edmund's head movement coaching for Ronda Rousey. So there's a lot of fights getting announced. Jessica I versus Cynthia Calvillo is actually main eventing. Really? Is that main eventing the prelims or something? The options must be really thin. I'm very shocked that this is going to be main eventing. There's so many fights like a main event. There's so many better fights with maybe not as high ranked fighters, 
but just fights that are fun in general that could main event over this. At the end of the day, it's more about numbers, so if they're gonna do something like this, I'd rather see them put a prospect as a main event. Do something like that. Maybe a Sean O'Malley. Take him off the card he's fighting, put him at the main event. I don't understand this notion here. Yeah, they're high-ranked fighters. Yeah, just guys just fought for our title. But when has that become the plan? I thought they changed to, we want the bigger fights, you know, bigger money fights. And I think it's a great opportunity to give one of their prospects a very rare opportunity to main event a card this early in their career. I think it could build them up, especially if they have a good performance, put their name out there for maybe even casual fans to watch, because then again, one of the only sports in the world going on. So it's a great opportunity. I'm shocked that they're actually doing this. Dustin Poirier's fighting Dan Hooker. That's an interesting one because it limits the amount of opponents some of those lightweights have. Conor McGregor, right? Tony Ferguson, potentially. Because Dustin Poirier's out, I don't know who they're going to match those two up with in the future. Erhoani thinks that uh, Nate Diaz is going to be fighting Conor McGregor, which I can see absolutely. That's a big fight. But part of me really wants to see Tony fight Conor McGregor, right? I feel bad for Tony Ferguson, man. He needs a big payday like that. And the Dustin Poirier versus Dan Hooker fight is going to be on Fight Island in July. I swear, if they don't have Dana White sitting on like some big throne behind the fighters, like have an octagon, but it better be outside or something like that. Dana White's on his big throne like he's watching over his little minions fighting each other. I have to see that. One person feeding him grapes on one side, patting the top of his head, make sure it's dry so he looks really good. Almost like a Shao Kahn or something like that. That better be the thing. Man, I hope this thing lasts though. I know Dana White said that it's going to be kind of only for the whole coronavirus situation. I hope he changes his mind. I hope once they go through it, first we got to see how it is. We got to see how it all turns out. But if it is as we think it's going to be like, I hope they keep it. Fight Island, it's going to be like a like a vacation for fighters. In a way, they get to fight there, train there. They got everything they need there. They got the tests there as well. Fighters are going to start asking to pay rent. It'll be like a dream come true for them. I hope they keep it around. And I hope one day fans can come over there. It'd be wild. I don't know if they can do that, though. I don't know if they could bring an audience there. Unless Dana brings, like, certain special fans, you know, that he does sometimes. That'd be a little bit different, but that would be awesome. And my thoughts of the fight, I like Dan Hooker. I like the way he fights. He's so gritty and tough, but, man, this is not a good fight for him. I think Poirier has his way with Dan Hooker, to be honest. And now, what's this? It's not really breaking news, but it's a conversation going on. Jorge Masvidal is calling out Nate Diaz. Now, this throws everything into a loop because what everybody thought was Jorge was going to fight Kamar Usman, but there was a possibility he might fight Conor McGregor. I was throwing out that he could fight Nate, he could fight Nick. The fact that it took him this long to call out someone specifically means that he was probably in negotiations, he was probably talking it over. A lot of things probably didn't come into place, and he knew that the Nate Diaz fight was the safe fight to obtain. It was the fight that if he called him out, he would probably get it. But I'm still shocked. Like, why not the Usman fight? Why? Like, what's going on there? Why take the Nate fight rather than the Usman fight? Is it because he gets more money out of it because of the pay-per-view? And Usman's not a draw. Nate's a bigger draw than Usman. That seems to be the driving factor, in my opinion. Unless Usman is ducking, which I don't think so. That's just the only other explanation that could kind of, you know, kind of clear up the situation here. I don't care about the fight too much, to be honest. It's a fun one. You know, I absolutely watch it. But after seeing how much Jorge dominated that first one, it's tough to get super excited about the rematch. Yes, I understand Nate Diaz. He can come back. He's strong fourth and fifth rounds, which is not even historically true. He has good cardio and he has a good chin. And he has toughness. He's able to come back. He has a heart of a lion. I understand those things, but there was really no part at the end of that fight that showed to me that Nate Diaz was coming back. He was slapping from his back, but then he started getting hammered on top 
And that's what ended that third round. The thing that a lot of people saw was that Jorge Masvidal put his hands up above his head and he started breathing heavy, like he was trying to get his breath. And that could possibly show that he was slowing down or he was probably going to slow down and maybe Nate could come back. That's the biggest thing going into this rematch, if it happens, is that Nate has a comeback factor because he's never out of the fight. And if you beat on him so much to the point where you start to get tired, that's when he starts to put it on you. That's the only real interesting thing about it. The first three rounds, Jorge's going to absolutely dominate. And he might even finish because Nate got dropped in the fight. He got hurt badly multiple times. And that chin is just not going to last his entire career. And with that, I have to say Jorge absolutely dominates this fight. He might even get the finish. I don't know. It's hard to say because Diaz is super tough. But Jorge should win this fight, I'd say like 80-20. And this brings up other news that Connor can potentially fight Kamar Usman, or at least it's a talk that Ali Abdelaziz brought up, who manages Kamar Usman, because this whole Hori thing seems to have fallen out. You think the UFC wouldn't put Connor up against a champion? It's almost a death sentence, to be honest here. It's a very bad fight for Connor. Kamar Usman would absolutely dominate that fight from pillar to post, and might even change Connor for the rest of his career if he stays in that long. But. That's a terrible fight. That's absolutely awful. That's the last guy Connor should fight looking from welterweight to featherweight. Kamar Usman's the guy he should stay clear away from. That's the absolute nightmare for him. <laughs> no pun intended. And that'd be really weird. At least if that happens, it gives more of a chance that Tony Ferguson gets a title shot at lightweight. Because if Connor goes and fights Usman, for an example, and he gets absolutely shut out, and he goes and fights Khabib for the belt after, like that makes no sense. That that would ruin a lot of the sport for me. Thinking about it, there's very little Connor has over Kamaru Usman. Yes, he's a better striker overall. He's a better boxer and stuff. He's faster. But he has a massive reach disadvantage. He's not going to stop the takedowns. Kamaru Usman is infinitely times stronger. He is getting better at boxing, especially defensively. He's good at staying away and using his reach. And if he dives at Connor's legs the way, let's say, Habib did, what is stopping Khan from getting away from that? You know, because Kamar Usman has a very explosive double leg, very fast to explode for that takedown. And if he gets any contact with him, it's it's over. It's pretty much done from there because you're talking about a guy who's stronger than Habib, one of the best wrestlers in the sport, doesn't gas out, more powerful than Habib is, and his ability to keep top control and top pressure is near what Habib is able to do. And we're talking about a guy who fights heavier with an iron chin as well. So it's a very, very tough one for Connor to pull off if he ever could. Right now, I'd say that fight's like a 90-10, right? 90% chance that Usman wins that fight. And what's this other thing? So oh, everybody knows Mike Tyson's coming back for this charity fight. I think he's going to fight Vander Holyfield. No way he's going to fight a new boxer. I know a lot of people have this crazy nostalgia about Mike Tyson and they think he's like not a human being, but I hope. They don't bring him upon new guys, Deontay Wilder, Anthony Joshua. That should not happen. That should never happen. Fighting a guy like Evander Holyfield would be awesome. And it is only a charity amateur fight. I doubt they're going to go balls to the wall and ham on each other. Who knows though, Evander Holyfield is going to be like, oh, this is my chance. He bit my ear. This is my only chance. I know he said he doesn't care about it anymore, but there's still part of him. I know that fighter in him, there's still that part of him. It's like, this guy bit me, man. How could this guy have bit me on live TV in front of everybody? And just go at it with Tyson. That would be amazing. That would be awesome, man. But there's other guys calling him out. Tito Ortiz. I think Ken Shamrock. Ken Shamrock. I don't know why. I don't want to see that. I don't want to see Tito Ortiz fight him. And I think Andre Arlovsky called him out or something like that. The biggest worry for me is if Mike Tyson goes out there and fights. And he gets that love for fighting again. And he actually wants to do one for real. Professionally. That's what I really worry about. Because, again, he is a fighter. Fighters have such a hard time staying away from their sports. Staying away from fighting. 
And once they are able to do it, they usually do stay away. But if they come back and get that taste again, they might just sit down for the meal. And that's really not a good thing for Mike Tyson now. I don't want to see him get hurt anymore. I don't want to see him get injured. I don't want to see him get beat up or knocked out again or something like that. Because we all know Deontay Wilder, for an example, because that's the fight a lot of people talk about Mike Tyson versus Deontay Wilder. Who would have won? You think Deontay Wilder would not take a Mike Tyson fight? Everybody would take a Mike Tyson fight besides maybe Tyson Fury because he has that much respect for him that he wouldn't want to go through that. Deontay Wilder would do it for sure, right? He's in for the money. And that would be a giant money fight regardless. No matter how washed up Mike Tyson is, no matter how old he is, Deontay Wilder would take that fight. He would beat him 100%, get the money out of it, and he'll be hated by everybody. That's the thing, man. But the charity fight, I'm looking forward to it. I'm actually I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to that. That'd be awesome. His videos of him hitting the mitts and moving around and stuff, it's shocking that he's over 50 years old and he's moving like this. He's so fast still and he's in great shape. Might be taking stuff. I don't know. I'm not saying he is, but he looks really good for what, 52 years old he is, 53? And the crazy thing is when he talked to Francis Ngannou, if you guys haven't checked that out, I recommend watching uh, his podcast with Francis Ngannou. He looks so alive in there. He looks so motivated. He looked like he wanted to coach Francis and make a monster. Create another monster like kind of how Kevy Rooney made him. Bring that out of Francis Agano and make him like a heavyweight champion in boxing. Because Francis Agano said that he wants to box. He said he's going to box. That's his dream. Yes, UFC and stuff is great. MMA is great. But he said his dream since he was young was to become a boxer. And it's crazy he still has that. And let's be honest, if there's going to be any MMA fighter who can be successful in boxing, it's going to be Francis Agano because it's the heavyweight division. You don't need to be extremely skilled to be successful. And he can knock out anybody with one punch, most likely. Very powerful. He's extremely athletic. He learns quick. He's very smart, intelligent. If you guys ever heard him talk, he's very articulate with his words. He really thinks about what he says. And I believe that kind of mentality can bring him into a very successful boxing career, probably, does that mean he's going to beat Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder and Anthony Joshua? No, I don't think so. But then again, he only needs one punch. He's one punch away from winning it all. And let's be honest, you know, uh, Deontay Wilder, some of his technique isn't really stellar, if you know what I'm saying. So, no, I'm just kidding. I do think Deontay Wilder is a better boxer for sure. But you never know, man. With his style and the fact that he does get wild at times, if Francis Gano could bring that war out of Deontay Wilder and get him to swing and miss, and Francis Gano catches him while being like, what, 50 pounds heavier, 40 pounds heavier? That's night-night for Deontay Wilder. But let's get right to the questions here. For any new listeners, if you want to ask a question, you could go on my YouTube page under the community tab where I will post questions for podcasts. Just reply any questions you have under there. It could be about anything. I answer any question, as long as it has a lot of likes, of course. So questions with the most likes, get read first. But if you think Twitter's more convenient, you could tweet me. My Twitter handle is under every video. Just tweet me your question and hashtag it MMA meeting so it doesn't get lost. So the question of the most likes comes by Ethiopian Phenomenon. Does John Jones have a better chance of beating Ngannou or Adesanya having a better chance of beating Jones? Interesting question. I honestly think Adesanya has a better chance of beating Jones than Jones beating Ngannou because Adesanya has a clear striking advantage over Jones. He has insanely good takedown defense and he's active off his guard and he doesn't gas out. And he has ability to knock out opponents. He's fought heavyweight in kickboxing with knockout ability, so you know he has it going up to 205 with four-ounce gloves. He'll be able to expose some of the holes of John Jones striking for sure. He's also faster than Jones, and he's long and just as tall. So some of the attributes are not going to be too much in John Jones' favor. Yes, he's going to be stronger, but he's going to have to be able to catch Adesanya or grab a hold of him. And if he's going to engage Adesanya, 
he's going to run into counter strikes for sure. He's going to expose himself on the offense. While Adesanya, if he's coming in on Jones, he's really good at getting in and out and tricking the opponent, making him think he's going to go a certain way. That can throw off some of the takedowns, throw off some of the clinch attempts. And Adesanya, no matter what, attacks long. Right? He's not going to get in close on John Jones and get in, box him up in the dirty boxing exchange or something like that. That's generally not going to happen. I think what he would do is he would engage, give him some kind of feints, which he does to everybody, get John Jones to bite on those feints. He'll get a couple reads out of that. He'll download some of the data from that. Go to the legs, which seems to be the recent hole of John Jones' game that Thiago Santos and Dominic Reyes exposed. Go to that a lot. He can mix up to the body and the head that those other guys couldn't necessarily do as well. And this would ultimately force Jones to be very uncomfortable in the striking and try to wrestle more. And I can see a lot of takedowns becoming unsuccessful, right? Tiago Santos defended a takedown. Dominic Reyes defended some takedowns and popped up whenever he got taken to the ground immediately, right? While we know that Dominic Reyes in the past got taken up by Volkan Uzdemir controlled on the ground, Adesanya has amazing wrestling defense where not even Yoel Romero was able to hold him on the ground. So I find that a tough fight for Jones. John Jones versus Nganu. Yes, John has more weapons to use. He has more advantages and skill, but he gets caught once it's over. And not just that. His attributes get overlapped in this fight. Reach not so much because he does have a one-inch reach advantage, but everything else, his strength, his power, his footwork ability, all that stuff, Nganu has at a higher level. And the boxing defense of Jones is not going to work in this fight. He has to change it up. Post and retreat, putting his arm forward and moving away from Nganu is not going to work because Nganu can punch him wherever John Jones extends. Wherever Jones can punch or extend his arm, and Gano could punch him at that same distance. That's scary. That's very scary. He has to go by another way of defending Ngannou's punches. Now you'll say he could do what Stipe did. No, not really. He probably can. But he doesn't do what Stipe does. And he's never really shown to do what Stipe does. Stipe has good head movement, especially from hooks and stuff. John Jones never bobs and weaves. He never slips like that. He always just moves away using his reach. That's generally how he avoids punches. I've never seen him bob and weave under hooks and stuff like that successfully. And even look at the Gustafson 2 fight. Look at that fight and then think about if Ngannou was in front of John Jones. The amount of times he overextended and he moved his head so drastically, he would 100% get caught in that fight if he fought that same way. He made these sort of leans in that fight like side to side that Alistair Overeem did when he got knocked out by the uppercut. Because Ngannou is very good at pivoting. He's very good at rotating to face the opponent. No matter where he's at, no matter how he punches, he's extremely quick to face the opponent. Even look at the Andre Arlovsky fight, looking at JDS fight, looking at the Alistair Overeem fight. When he extends with his punches, it's shocking to see him how quick he is to get back to his stance. So that kind of thing goes away. And also, Ngannou's leg kicks are so powerful. They're extremely powerful. There's a YouTube video, I think, of him kicking some guy while he's holding the pad kicks him in the leg, and it looked like the guy was not going to be able to walk for the rest of the day. The thundering cracks of his kicks against JDS were shocking. And if Dominic Reyes and Thiago Santos can leg kick Jones that badly, to the point where John Jones had a hard time walking after the fight, one kick from Nganu is enough. And I can understand Jones can possibly take him to the ground, but it's kind of hard to grab the calf kick, for an example. And also, Nganu is not a slow striker, right? And he makes opponents very worried of his hands, now he's going to be using leg kicks. So the focus is on the hands of Nganu for everybody he fights. That's why for the guys that he did throw kicks at, they never really checked them. And I think the same thing would be for John Jones as well. And Jones doesn't normally check kicks and he doesn't normally actually grab a leg kick and get it to the ground. He's done it in the past, a long time ago, but with the faster fighters that there are today, it's harder for him to get that read. And also, how does John Jones usually take down opponents? In the clinch. 
He's going to get overpowered in the clinch. It's just going to happen. Alistair Overeem did. Overeem couldn't work for a tie plum. He couldn't try to get the fight to the ground. Right when they clinched up, Ngannou threw him into the cage and pressed him up against it. And we're talking about Alistair Overeem. Overeem's a very strong guy. Very powerful. They changed the rules in kickboxing because of his tie plum. And it doesn't matter tie plum or just clinch up. He's so strong in the clinch naturally because he's been doing it his entire life. Yet Nganu, the first time he goes up against Nganu, he couldn't even control him in there. He couldn't even get a grip inside before Nganu whiplashes him how fast he turned him. It's a tough air for John Jones. It really is. It's the reason why I've been saying for two years now that Francis Nganu is the most dangerous fight for John Jones. He's the hardest fight for John Jones, in my opinion. Yeah, so I think Adesanya defeating Jones is a higher chance of John Jones defeating Nganu. That's not to say, though, that like Jones can't beat Ngannou. Of course he can. I don't even think it's that much of Ngannou's favor to win that fight. I just think it's the guy that would most likely defeat John Jones. And then we go to Mensur. I have two questions, Mr. Weasel. How would Yair versus Zabit go? And who would be the best head coach for Tony Ferguson? Keep up the good work, my man. Thank you so much for the question. So, Yair versus Zabit is really interesting. They're like two modern ninjas going at it. Now, Yair throws more kicks. I think he is a better kicker. But Zabit may be more efficient because he has better round kicks. He's better as a Muay Thai kicker than Yair, who's a Taekwondo kicker. So he could possibly chop the legs down and that can ultimately throw off the kicking game of Yair as well as throwing off his movement. And the fact that Zabit is taller and longer, some of the kicks from Yair are going to be pretty hard to land because not only is Zabit longer and taller and he's a bit faster, he also has a great understanding of those spinning kicks and flashy kicks that he's able to get away from them. So I do ultimately think that the striking game is going to go to Zabit. And because of that, that throws out most of Yair's chances. So I think Zabit would win. If it goes on the ground, he dominates easily. And on the feet, it would be kind of dicey. But here's the thing. Yair is going to have a stronger last third round. It depends if it's a five-round fight. But he's going to get his legs chopped. So how much is his movement and kicking game going to be effective in that third round? Essentially, Yair is going to have to be very strong defensively. In that first round, he cannot get leg kicked that often or taken to the ground. So he can perform a lot better in the third round. Now, if it's a five round fight, I still think Zabit wins because I just don't see Ayer finishing Zabit. I can see Zabit winning the first three rounds and then loses the last two. So no matter what, I'll go with Zabit. It's so hard to fight that guy for the first two rounds. And the best head coach for Tony Ferguson, I don't know, man. The thing about Tony is, it makes him so special. I don't think he's that coachable, like telling him what to do. He just looks like a free spirit in there where he just wants to try things. He wants to do a lot of things. Nobody teaches you to fight the way Tony fights. There's nobody's going to tell you those techniques. Maybe the Imanari role and some of the ground game, but even the elbows and stuff, I doubt they're really telling him to throw those elbows. On the feet, I know 100% nobody's telling him to strike like that. Nobody is. So it's just hard to say who would be his head coach. His head coach would have to be someone who can kind of come up with game plans rather than teach him techniques. Come up with, you got to fight this certain way. Someone who's really cerebral. Maybe Matt Hume. But then again, Matt Hume is very down on techniques, basics, fundamentals, stick to that. So I don't think necessarily that would help him too much because he's going to go into his El Kukui style. Maybe John Kavanaugh, I'm going to be honest here. I actually think John Kavanaugh would be a good coach for Tony Ferguson. Someone who's very intelligent, very calm in the corner, knows what he's looking at, and he would just go with game plans rather than teaching him how to strike or teaching him how to grapple. How ironic is that? Train with Conor McGregor and train with John Kavanaugh might be a really good move for him. But it would never happen. Then we go to J.N. Frost. Can Tony beat Justin in a rematch? If so, how? Yes, he can. But I actually think Justin would beat him in a rematch. The way Tony would have to win this, he would have to fight long, stay on the outside, and don't do anything too committed. Don't try to knock the guy out. 
every step of the way with every punch. You're the longer guy, you gotta be the longer guy. You gotta jab a lot from a distance. What he was doing was he was digging in with his jab even though he has a reach advantage. And because of that, Justin was just moving slightly away where the punch misses, but then when the punch is getting dropped, when the hand is dropping, Justin would intercept him, counter him as Tony's head comes in the way. When you throw a punch and you dig in, your head follows. Tony should not let that happen. Tony has to go in and out, right? Just use the forward foot. It's just the basics. You don't move your back foot to jab in when you have a longer reach. In this kind of circumstance where the guy's trying to counter you, you shouldn't be moving your back foot in when you're throwing a jab. Just move the front foot. Move it forward and then back into stance. They got to get in on you. Why are you doing half the work for them, right? And push kicks should be the main kick for Tony Ferguson. Don't throw light kicks. Don't throw round kicks. A lot of push kicks. Use the combination. One jab. See if that works. See how Justin reacts. Two jabs. Once you notice the distance of the first jab, he's moving slightly away. Jab and then step in a little bit more with the forward foot. Jab again and then step back. If that works, now maybe you could try the 1-1-2, 1-1-2-3, get back into your stance. Maybe 1-1-2-1, one, 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 get back into your stance. Fight long and fight from that far distance. It's generally what Tony would have to do because the way he was fighting, he was doing the work for Justin. He was getting into Justin's reach and that was ultimately what was hurting him. And also, don't drop your hands that much. You know he's coming in for that right overhand over your left jab, so keep that up or expect it and never turn the back to Justin. Justin's too quick and too athletic. You cannot turn your back and think you're going to get away. It works against some guys who pop shot, who try to take his head off with one big punch. Justin was setting up combinations and he was taking off power from his punches that Trevor Whitman told him to do. So you know that he's going to come with combinations. You cannot turn your back. You can't. He's going to chase you down. Again, just stick to the basics of boxing. That's all Tony would have to do. And throw a lot of push kicks. Then we go to Justin, Homer Simpson, Gaethje. Do you think Tony should get another shot at a real belt right after Habib versus Justin? He risked it all by taking the Justin fight probably because he needed to get paid and lost the gamble. The UFC should give him back the favor because Tony fighting another time before a shot Connor or Dustin could end his career if he loses again. And number two, in my opinion, not having a crowd helped Justin Gagey a lot because it helped him stay relaxed and calm. That's an interesting take. What are your thoughts on that? Thank you for the quality content. You're the GOAT of MMA on YouTube. Thank you so much, man. And really interesting questions. Number one, I don't think it would happen. Yeah, he probably would deserve it, even after the Habib and Justin fight, because he's done more than everybody else, even Connor. He's done more than Connor by a large margin. They're coming off a loss in the lightweight division. And who's next? Dustin Poirier? He's coming off a loss. He just got a title shot. And Charles Oliveira needs a couple more wins. Yeah, Tony would make the most sense after this if no one else fights. But uh, the UFC wouldn't do that. At this point, they would put Connor above Tony, for sure. With Tony losing, they have a chance to put Connor up there after Habib and Justin if Tony doesn't fight in the meantime. And the no crowd helping Justin stay relaxed, it could have. It's hard to know for sure because he loves the glory of war. I think the fans would have affected it a little bit. It made the fight a little bit more chaotic, which would have helped Tony Ferguson because it would probably bring Justin into that kind of fight. Uh, just really hard to know for sure. Really hard to know. I have to see Justin fight again with no crowd. But if you look at his previous fights, did Trevor Whitman tell him the same thing? Did he give him these kind of coachable advices? Did the title shot opportunity bring Justin to a more calm state and more focused? It's hard to know. If Trevor Whitman did in the past do the same sort of thing, same coaching, all that stuff, and Justin still went out there and went to war, then I'm pretty sure the audience would have affected Justin Gaethje. We just got to look at the Dustin Poirier fight. And uh, Eddie Alvarez fight. They go to Humail Yunus. Who is the most likely to become champion first? Korean Zombie, Darren Till, Aljamain Sterling, or Leon Edwards? I think Korean Zombie. 
Yeah, I would say Korean Zombie 100%. I think Leon Edwards won't get the belt as long as Kamar Usman or Colby Covington have the belt. I think his wrestling defense is just not on that level. El Jermaine, I think, will be a top contender for the rest of his career. Darren Till might become the champion, but I don't think he'll be the first. I think Korean Zombie has the best chance of being the first champion. Darren Till, I think, later on, as he gets older and gets more experience, he will eventually become a champion. Korean Zombie has a really good style up against Alexander Volkanovsky's. Then we go to Michael Cianci. Number one, Dark Horse of each division. I get confused what a dark horse is. Hold on, let me see a real definition. Pardon my English. So someone that people know very little about, and it could seem like they just had some recent success all of a sudden, but they were always on the climb. Okay, so it's not Surreal Gone, because he's kind of like the big prospect. That's a tough for each division, that's tough. You know what, I could say Surreal Gone, because what does it mean that nobody knows him? The hardcore fans? But the hardcore fans know everybody. The casual fans more, or semi-hardcore? I pick Surreal Gone for heavyweight. I think he's going to be really promising later on in his career. Light heavyweight, I would say, oh, it's a toss-up between two guys. I'll say Magomed Ankalaev and there's Alonzo Menafield. They're both very promising. Although Alexander Rakic is definitely not out of the woods, right? He's coming off a loss. I definitely see a bright future for that guy. I think he's been training and really getting back for a great return, for a great comeback win. And middleweight... Can you see Edmund Shabazian? Because I feel like they're actually building him up and he's getting a little bit more exposure now. Well, I'll either say Edmund Shabazian or Adolfo Vieira. Adolfo has... He's probably the best BGJ guy in the entire division. He's extremely strong. His striking's coming up. Man, getting into the ground with that guy is not going to be fun for anybody. At welterweight, it's Jeff Neal, 100%. There's a lot of good guys, but... Yeah, that guy still doesn't get the shine, still is relatively unknown, yet he is one of the most dangerous guys in the division for everybody. He is what Leon Edwards was, and frankly, Kamar Usman was the dark horse. There were a lot of dark horses. Santa Cabanzanibio, he's a dark horse as well. There's so many dark horses in this division. But I believe at the moment, Jeff Neal, because he's not as known as Santa Cabanzanibio, I think Pazanibio had a main event before, he's the guy. At lightweight, if you asked me earlier, I would 100% said Charles Oliveira. But now, there's some really good ones. Atman Zaitar is one of them. Mark Madsen, for sure. Even Vink Pickles doing pretty well. But I would say the number one dark horse is Diego Ferreira. I think that guy's going to be a top-ranked fighter. And possibly, if he could put things together even more, he might even become a champion at one point. Featherweight, what, who else would it be? Ryan Hall, 100%. The fighters know about him. They're staying clear away from that wizard. But the fans just don't know. A lot of fans don't know who he is. And because no one wants to fight him... He might be a dark horse forever until he retires. At bantamweight, I'll have to say it's Raoni Barcelos. People don't know about him, but he's on an eight-fight win streak. He just defeated Saeed Nurmagomedov, which a lot of people would have said was a dark horse of the division. And he's undefeated in the UFC right now with four straight wins, three of them by finish. And he finishes late, too, second and third rounds. So we probably know he has really good cardio. He had a pretty viral knockout, or not viral, but a lot of people know of his knockout where he looked just like Jose Aldo knocking someone out. Like the movements were the same, the fast twitch was the same, the punches were the same. It looked just like it was Jose Aldo. He was kind of chasing the guy down with those right uppercuts and the opponent just couldn't get away. At flyweight, it's Askar Eskarov. Ah, woman's bantamweight. I don't think there really is a dark horse. Also at women's flyweight, it's tough. Maybe Antonina Shevchenko, but I don't know if he would call her a dark horse. And a strawweight, I'll say Yan Xiaonan. And then your number two question, is there a story behind the name The Weasel? No, that's just what humans call my species. No, but um, there's no real interesting story behind it, to be honest. I actually created this account for YouTube a long time ago, nine years ago. When I was 16 years old, I created it on YouTube, but I created it on Facebook before that when I was really young, like 12, 13 years old or something like that. All it was when I was a kid, I saw a funny picture of a weasel. I tried to use that name, but I 
think back then you couldn't use the same name as someone else. So I had to change it up a little bit. And I just put up my first video on YouTube on that account because I didn't really have another. And it quickly got traction and it quickly got to the point where people already knew me as that name. So I couldn't change it even if I wanted to change it. But there was a time where I thought about, man, I should have changed the name. People are probably not going to know that my channel is about MMA and they're just going to see my name and be like, wait, what is that? I still have people say, is that Steven Espinosa's channel? It's kind of funny that people, you know, they come up with these memes and they come up with these jokes around it. So I kind of like it for that aspect as well. But after seeing like designs and see how people actually like the name in a way, it's spelled differently, it's spelled uniquely. I'm happy with it. So no great story behind it. It's not like some, you know, back in my day, I, this is what they call me a war. And I used to deceive the enemy and I was able to gather information from the enemy. And no, nothing crazy like that. That would be awesome. Then we go to no name. Don't you think that just from a stylistic standpoint, without looking at records and rankings, the Tony Habib fight is just as interesting as ever before since Habib could not use what Justin Gaethje's game plan was anyways. Would love to hear your take on this, yes. So really looking at it, don't look at, oh, cause Tony lost. Don't look at it like that. Look at what happened. The Habib and Tony fight is the same. The only thing that might change now is the fact that Tony took a beating and it might hurt his chin or something, you know? That's really it. It might hurt his confidence, which I don't think. I think Tony's very strong mentally to the point where he's, he's a different person. You know, I don't think a loss, just like the Michael Johnson loss back in the day, where he did kind of get dominated to a point. Not dominated, but he was getting beaten for the fight. He only got stronger and went on this crazy win streak after, you know. So I don't think a loss is going to deter Tony Ferguson, especially because of how experienced he is. He's fought everybody. I think it's the same thing. I think the fight's the same and nothing changes. Khabib is not going to fight the way Justin did. And if he does, I don't know, man, Habib is unstoppable at that point. If Habib starts throwing hands like Justin Gaethje and start moving around the way he does and countering, doesn't even want to take it to the ground and able, you know, just able to fight that way. I don't think anybody could beat Habib at that point. And that is why I believe Tony did a lot of things he did against Justin Gaethje because it might have been such a repetitive training drill of his he was continuously preparing for a grappler for seven months straight and he was probably instinctively fighting that way in the Justin Gaethje fight that might have been why he was sitting on his punches and trying to knock out Gaethje and going at him you know because the way he fought Kevin Lee for an example remember when Tony fought Kevin Lee and when he fought RDA he was staying on the outside remember that remember he dropped Kevin Lee moving backwards I mean he did kind of get rocked but he dropped him moving backwards Look at the way he fought RDA for the first round. He let RDA do everything. He was just staying away. Against Gaethje, he ran after the lion. He tried to chase the lion down, you know? So I believe, yeah, Tony Habib is just as interesting as before. It, nothing really changes for me about it. I still think it's one of the greatest fights of all time. Now, this question kind of expands on the Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje outcome by German Klar. After watching Gaethje outbox Ferguson for the vast majority of five rounds, I'm beginning to think that Dustin Poirier is a very bad matchup for Tony, even more so than Connor, because although Connor is very dangerous for the first two rounds, he still has that obvious stamina issue, and if it goes past two rounds, Tony will be able to pressure him and eventually TK will submit him in the later rounds. However, Dustin Poirier isn't really known to gas out, and he has very good boxing along with great timing and power. Do you agree with this? Also, love the podcast, man. Thank you so much for the question, and I would also like to expand on that. Even if it gets to the ground, Dustin Poirier is a high-level grappler. Very high level. Dustin Poirier is a tough fight. Again, very good boxer, but he's a different kind of boxer. I think he could do what Justin Gaethje did for sure because he's more technical and he's done things that Justin Gaethje did in that fight before. He actually did a lot of it to Justin Gaethje, to be honest. Remember, when Gaethje was throwing leg kicks, that's when Dustin Poirier would bang him with the left straight and then follow up afterward. He was kind of doing the same thing. So yes, he could do the same thing to Tony Ferguson. He also has, I think, a longer reach, or at least he extends on his punches a lot more. So he fights longer. 
He does have power, not as much power as Gaethje, but it doesn't really matter because Tony didn't get knocked up by Gaethje. He's not going to get knocked up by Dustin Poirier, most likely. The question is, would he outbox him for five rounds like Gaethje did? If Tony fights that same way, the same way he fought Gaethje, yes, he would. He would probably have lost to Dustin Poirier that night as well. The thing is about Dustin, though, is he seems to be not as comfortable as Justin Gaethje under pressure. When the fire gets blown at him, he's a little bit more methodical of getting away from it entirely than kind of meeting it like Justin Gaethje likes to do. Justin Gaethje is very comfortable in war. That's just how he is. That's just his mentality. That's how he fights. Dustin Poirier has to learn to do that. Dustin Poirier has to learn to how to handle that kind of chaos, right? The only time we really saw that, we saw a little bit against Eddie Alvarez, but we saw a lot when he fought Justin Gaethje, but we've never seen that before from Dustin Poirier. If things got pushed too much, he would back away. He would try to find an angle. He would try to find a way out of it and reset. While Gaethje doesn't ever do that. He never wants to reset. The time it resets is when he punches you in the face and makes you back away. That's when he resets. So I think if Tony brings that kind of pressure, Dustin wouldn't be able to keep up with it for as long as Justin Gaethje did, right? I think eventually he'll give Tony some breathing space when he moves forward on him. He'll throw a punch and Dustin will try to just move away. And a few of those moments will allow Tony to land something else, set up something, get something to download. So it'll be a little bit different. But ultimately, yes, I do think Dustin Poirier could box him up for five rounds. But the thing is, you got to remember that Tony did drop Justin Gaethje. I understand Gaethje was chasing a little bit more. He went into that highlight mentality. I got to get this knock on this guy. He was having so much excitement and he got dropped for it. If Tony hits Dustin Poirier with that kind of punch, I don't think Dustin Poirier gets up, to be honest. That was a full flush uppercut. That was like something you see at Tekken, you know what I'm saying? You know those uppercuts that they lift the guy up in the air with? That's the kind of uppercut he hit Justin Gaethje with. And I don't think Dustin Poirier would be able to take that. Because Gaethje has an incredible chin. While Dustin Poirier has like an average chin, I'll say. You could even say a little bit below average. So I'll say Dustin, yes, he can beat Tony. The one that fought Gaethje that night, I think he would have won. But if Tony is preparing for Dustin Poirier, I honestly don't think Poirier would beat him because he would fight differently. Just like if he prepares for Justin Gaethje, he's not going to fight that same way, most likely, right? I think a lot of people know not to engage Gaethje like that. Nobody does that. Doesn't mean I think Ferguson would beat Gaethje. He can. He would have a higher chance of doing it in a rematch if he's preparing for the guy. I still think Gaethje would win. Dustin Poirier, Tony Ferguson, if they got matched up together, I think Tony would win. But that night, I think Poirier would have won. And then we talk about Conor McGregor if he's going to fight Tony Ferguson. Well, it's the toughest and roughest two rounds of Tony Ferguson's career because he's going to get hit. It really depends how Tony fights. He can pressure him, put the jab on him, try to do what Nate Diaz did, but do that initially in the fight. He probably will get countered for it. But that's the ultimate way to get Conor tired. He could try to wrestle. He can go for the Imanari rules. He could just do stuff to make Conor work to the point where he starts gassing out in the third, fourth, and fifth rounds. Because he has those options to make the fight a lot more competitive for the first two rounds or not get caught, do things that are a little bit more high IQ, Tony would probably win that fight. I actually give him more of a favorable chance of winning because third, fourth, and fifth rounds is going to be established for Tony Ferguson. He's going to stop Conor McGregor. I'm pretty sure on that. Conor's punches are not going to be as powerful. He's going to be a lot slower and he plods like crazy. He doesn't move. It'll be what Nate Diaz was able to do to him in that third round rubber in the rematch, but with more power, more speed, more volume, and more ferocity. And if you combine that all, I don't think Conor makes it out of the fourth round, to be honest. I think it ends by the fourth round with Tony Ferguson's hand getting raised. So that tells you that Dustin Poirier has a better chance of beating Tony Ferguson than Conor McGregor. For the lone fact that Dustin Poirier can beat him for five rounds, which Conor won't be able to do. And the other fact that 
Dustin's a better grappler than Connor if it gets to the ground. He can hold his own a lot more than Connor can. And he has really good takedown defense and very good at defending submissions. If in case Tony goes for like the Imanari roll right off the bat, you know what I'm saying? Or goes for a takedown right off the bat. Okay, so I'll say the chances of victory for each fighter, fighting the Tony that fought Justin Gaethje and fighting Tony when they both have preparation for each other. If Dustin Poirier fights the Tony Ferguson that fought Justin Gaethje, I think Dustin Poirier will have a 70% chance of winning. With preparation for each other, I think Tony Ferguson has like a 57% chance of winning. Like it's close, you know? And as for Conor McGregor, if that was Conor McGregor fighting Tony Ferguson at UFC 249, I think Conor would win like 62% chance. I would see Tony getting dropped, but I do not see him really getting knocked out. And because of that, that will start to gas out Conor McGregor for power punching his entire weight. Remember, Justin Gaethje did not power punch the whole fight. He didn't put all of his power in every punch. Conor does. So that would ultimately gas him out a little bit more. And that's why Tony Ferguson would have more of a chance of beating Conor than Dustin Poirier on that night because Dustin won't gas out at all. Now, if it's with preparation for each other, I actually think Tony Ferguson wins like 65% chance against Conor. And just talking about if he rematches Justin Gaethje in the future, I still think Justin Gaethje would beat him. And I'll also say like a 60% chance. Then we go to pro cow. How much does the crack, the Florida judges smoke cost? I don't know, ask John Jones. I'm just kidding. It was too easy. And then we go to Alex98X. How important is a manager for a fighter? I feel like someone like Tony or an Edwards, Leon Edwards, right? Would have better careers with the right management team. Yes, and Tony found that out pretty late in his career. He was with... Paradigm Sports, which is what Connor's with, and they didn't do him any favors. It seems like, at least to Tony Ferguson's account, he said, you know, they didn't treat him right, and it seems like on the outside for us fans that they just favored Connor because they're in the same division. They're both pretty much around that title shot opportunity. They probably saw it weird to negotiate for Tony when they have Connor there. You know what I'm saying? And it could have been this whole thing where Tony could have got a title shot, but it was just the management was favoring Conor McGregor rather than Tony. And that creates a very conflicting relationship. Tony's with someone else. I don't know who he's with. And I honestly don't know how long he's been with them. Was he with them with uh, for the Donald Cerrone fight? Or did he just get with them for this Justin Gaethje fight? Regardless, he made a lot of money in the Justin Gaethje fight. $500,000 base pay. He got pay-per-view numbers. They did 700000 buys. It's a lot of money for him, man. And I'm very, very happy for him for that. Hopefully he has sponsors and stuff, you know, makes tens of millions of dollars at least, I hope. And Edwards, I don't know who he's with. I don't know if his management's good. But the thing about Edwards is nobody's paying attention. And even when he gets his big fight with Tyron Woodley, which if he won, would have gave him a huge push. And everybody would know his name. And he would be undeniable. That was just luck, you know, bad luck. Everything gets locked down. And unfortunately, during the situation, he's over there in uh, London. Is he in England or something? Where they shut down the country pretty much to the point where he couldn't move out and the fight island i don't even think it was a plan then it was bad bad luck for leon edwards he just needs that big fight he needs a great performance and then he gets kind of a push everybody knows his name and everybody will start to think that oh maybe this guy's the he's the guy that everybody didn't know whenever that dark horse actually shows up and brightens up the room and everybody notices that all of a sudden it's kind of like the hot girl that you knew in high school that just blowed up all of a sudden wasn't really good looking in high school all of a sudden she becomes everybody's attention you know it's kind of that same thing whenever that thing happens everybody jumps on the wagon so i don't think so much with edward's management yet because he doesn't have any leveraging power he has real really no power he just needs that big fight gets a title shot and if he becomes champion that's when the management's really going to help him out when he gets to that title shot opportunity big contender fights that's where the management is going to have to do its job but it just seems like everybody's avoiding him because there's nothing to get out of it. There's no positive out of it. And he's a tough opponent. It's kind of like Ryan Hall. But here's the thing, man. That's where us fans come in. If we start building up these guys like Ryan Hall and Leon Edwards, they start to get this following, right? 
and people start to talk about them like, hey, nobody wants to fight. Look at Ryan Hall for an example now. Everybody knows that nobody wants to fight him. Everybody knows that he's avoided. And because of that, it's creating a bit of noise. I'm pretty sure it's going to catch some fighters' attention or even catch the UFC's attention and be like, hey, man, fans are behind these guys. You got to get them good fights, you know? And fighters stop avoiding them, you know, because he potentially can get a bigger name in the social media. And from that, you know, he can get sponsors and he can, you know, there's a lot of stuff that can happen with popularity from us fans. You know, that's really what it all comes down to. And then we go to Manuel Garcia Ramirez. Conor McGregor fantasy matchups against Whitaker at 170. I think Whitaker wins. He's way more powerful. I know he can't make 170 anymore, but let's hear the Whitaker from before. Yeah, I still think Whitaker would probably win. It'd be a tough fight because he would be extremely drained. He probably won't have a chin at all. Actually, if you think of like that, Conor can win for sure. But Whitaker's more powerful. He's fast. Conor's gonna be faster. You know what? I'll think of like that. Whitaker never wrestled. You know what? I'll go with Conor McGregor. I think the compromised chin would be a little bit too much for the speed of Conor's punches. Cejudo at 145? Conor for sure. He's too long. He's too big. Too powerful. And Cejudo cannot strike with him at all. Cejudo fights in that karate stance. Conor just does it better. And he's bigger and longer. Aldo too at 155. I think Conor still wins. I think he just has Aldo's number. I think it'll be a close fight. Some of the leg kicks will get to Conor McGregor. But I think eventually Aldo will get knocked out again for running it eventually. Because that's just what Aldo does. Justin Gaethje... At 155, I think Connor wins. I don't even think that changes much. Yeah, he's a little bit more methodical, but if if he fights like that against like he did against Tony, he's gonna get knocked out. He can't fight that game with Connor. Connor's never gonna engage him like that. Connor's longer, he punches faster, he's powerful, he's powerful enough to knock out Justin Gaethje, I'm pretty sure. He can't stay out there and counter with Connor. He's not gonna win that game ever. He's gonna get found out, he's gonna get finessed on for doing stuff like that. I think Justin Gaethje's style, if he doesn't wrestle, it's just a good style for Connor to perform against, to be honest. Volkanovski 145, that's an interesting fight. Because Volkanovski is very strong. I think he walks around the same as Connor, to be honest. He used to walk around heavier than Connor when he was in rugby, like over 200 pounds, right? He's a good wrestler, good striker, but the best thing about Volkanovski is his fight IQ and his corner. Him and his corner synergize so well. And because he's such a high IQ fighter, he can think of different ways to fight different fighters. Look at the way he fought Josie Aldo, look at the way he fought Max Holloway, and look at the way he fought Chad Mendes. He fought them all different. He went to war with Chad because he probably knew Chad couldn't withstand the damage. He fought slow and steady against Josie Aldo, and he was trying to see if Josie Aldo was going to make a mistake and open himself up. And against Max Holloway, he kind of just shut him down technically. He knew exactly what Max Holloway was going to do the entire fight, and just won every exchange because of that it's unpredictable because what what will Volkanovski show us will he show us something that we didn't know about Connor because that can absolutely happen but as of what I know of the two I'm gonna have to go with Connor I'm gonna go with Connor because he's very good at fighting shorter guys he's extremely good at trapping that lead hand he's extremely good at getting guys to fall into his left hand and his reach is just such a big factor even though Volkanovski has a 72 inch reach he's five foot six the reach is magnified I think Connor would win but it's not out of the realm of possibility that Volkanovski wins that fight. And now let's go to the Twitter questions. I apologize if I couldn't get to all the questions, man. You guys have really good questions, and I don't want to make it like a four-hour podcast, you know? We're going to first go to at JCDoolis1. Big fan, love your videos. If I, at 37 years old, decided to take up MMA with no experience, no fight damage, how long do you think my career will last? Please note, I'm not blessed like your natty boys, Costa and Romero. Thanks in advance. Keep up the great work. Um, It's going to be tough. I'm not going to lie. I don't want to sugarcoat anything. So when you see guys like Randy Couture able to do something like that, he's already had a long experience in wrestling. He was also training consistently military, I believe, right? Or is it the Navy? I don't know. I forgot which one he was in. And that was a long time ago where everything was more one-dimensional and it was easier to do that stuff. 
nowadays everybody knows everything so you kind of you're kind of uh, at a disadvantage compared to these young guys today how long do I think it will last it depends where you want to go if you want to just go amateur the whole way depends who you're fighting as well because your coaches are going to be very strategic on who you're fighting not going to have you fight some young guy who's tearing it up in the amateur scene about to go pro so there you could probably go for you know several years maybe but if you're talking about just training that can last forever and if I'm talking about pro, probably not that long. And you're saying you're not like physically gifted like Colston Romero. You know, those guys aren't even human. Yeah, I'd probably say a couple years, maybe three, four years. But you'll probably take some damage in that time. And if we're talking about UFC, again, man, nothing's impossible. I think the chances of that are pretty low. Then we go to at Nikola Jujak. I've been studying McGregor, Cruz, Dillashaw, and it helps whenever you explain their styles and explain their tendencies, etc. I'm thinking of taking these unique styles and molding it into one. How do you think I should do that? What's a good way to tie those styles together? You're a legend, Weasel. You're my favorite YouTuber. And I wouldn't be this much in love with MMA if you didn't exist. All the love from Australia, mate. All love to Australia. I want to eventually vacation there once this is all over. Yeah, I don't know how to express my reaction to those words. Uh, thank you so much, man. That means a lot. Those unique styles. So they're a bit different. They're all actually a bit different. McGregor is not as flashy with his lateral movement. He's very good linearly. Doesn't really move left and right too much. As Cruz and Dillashaw, they move in all different kind of directions. But Dillashaw, if you notice, he's not moving many directions backwards. When he's moving backwards, it's kind of just your usual lateral or your usual linear. When he's moving forward, that's when he's moving all different kind of angles. Cruz moves everywhere, everywhere he goes. Like, there's really, it's kind of hard to pinpoint where he's going to go. So when you talk about movement, they're all very different. Their tendencies are a little bit different as well. Cruz will lean a lot. He doesn't slip punches the way Connor and Dillashaw will. His head movement is a little bit more rapid and it's a little bit more exaggerated for the punches thrown at him, right? If you throw a jab at him, he's going to move his head and his head touches the floor because that's how far he's leaning. While Dillashaw kind of does it moderately where he just slips punches very well and enters on you and he enters with combinations or he'll go for the takedown instead. While McGregor, his slips are probably the best in the sport. He slips very slightly outside of punches and he comes back there's no exaggeration to conor mcgregor he does everything very sharply but he doesn't throw many combinations like dillashaw does right dillashaw's the combo king out of these three he's very good at linking up punches linking up kicks setting up every kind of different attack very sharply and he's very good at mixing up with the takedown which is cruz's effectiveness as well he's very good at doing that too and the thing about cruz and dillashaw is they both switch a lot especially dillashaw dillashaw's a little bit more obvious when he switches La Cruz it's kind of hard to tell if he's orthodox southpaw parallel whatever it's kind of hard to tell because his upper body doesn't normally change too much it's his legs that chain he's always kind of square to the opponent McGregor doesn't do any of that McGregor like never switches stances so to be honest McGregor is very different than those two like in everything he does he's very very different so I will say when Dillashaw gets caught because he's moving linearly when Cruz gets caught because he's moving too much laterally and when McGregor gets caught it's usually because he makes some giant mistake with a punch or something like that. And molding them three, it's kind of, I don't know, it, it, you can go many different ways to mold styles. But what I'll say is if you're going to fight a certain way, try not to just become someone else. I know everybody does that. Even Conor said he used to do that until he found his own style. So yeah, you could probably do that until what you see is comfortable. Mess around with things, but don't commit to a style. Let the style you eventually become, that just come naturally. And that's just happened. I know a lot of fighters, even early on, they want to fight like certain guys. I think Roy Jones Jr. wanted to fight like Sugar Ray Leonard. 
but eventually he didn't fight necessarily like Sugar Ray, but his style was a little bit similar. So it's the mindset. When you say you want to fight like guys like McGregor, Cruz, Dillashaw, if you want to take up that style because I believe you're younger. I believe you're like you're 16, 17, you said in a previous podcast or something like that. When you're young, you want to see what works for you and different styles catch your attention. If someone like McGregor, Cruz, and Dillashaw is catching your attention, that tells me what kind of mentality you have when it comes to martial arts, what kind of style you like. You like that flashy style. There's a lot reliant on movement and delivering with counter shots. So that tells me that your preference and the way you think and the way your style is going to be is not going to be like a Dan Henderson. It's not going to be like a Anthony Rumble Johnson, you know, Daniel Cormier. You know, it's not going to be that kind of plotting, wait for the big shot, wait for the big takedown style. It's a little bit more finesse than your usual fundamentals. But I will say this, that that's the thing that worries me when people go to this, when they think about these kind of styles is, you want to know your basics, man. The reason why I talk about it more in MMA than I do in boxing when I make boxing breakdowns is because in boxing, everybody knows the fundamentals. In MMA, because everybody's not so adept in boxing, and even if they are, they're not that great in boxing compared to boxers, the fundamentals really change out fights. They really do. There's some exceptions. Yo, Connor, you know, he's not super fundamental, but he's probably the best boxer in the UFC. So he's a little bit of an outlier. He's a very good natural boxer. And also he trained in boxing. So I'm pretty sure he knows some of the fundamentals, especially over there with the European style, with that Irish style, you know? So even if you want to take up these kind of styles or you want to just try them out, and I know eventually you're going to have a style like this. I know you're going to be a flashy person who relies on movement and stuff and a little bit more sharp pointed with your attacks, maybe even become more of a sniper. You want to know the basics, man. Do not. I understand they're boring. I know they're boring, man, but you need to know them. And not only do you need to know them, you need to drill them more than you drill anything else. Because if someone figures out your flash, your basics are going to be the thing that can save you. And if you don't have them because you didn't drill them enough, you're going to be pretty much helpless if you compete in MMA or something like that. But this is why MMA is different, because it's a combination of martial arts. There are fundamentals in each martial art. In boxing, taekwondo, muay thai, there's different fundamentals for each sport. There is no fundamentals for MMA. You could probably count, you know, cage work and stuff like that that's different, but everything else when you come to specific techniques, there is no actual fundamental. You got to bring those fundamentals from different martial arts, different sports, which makes it hard to drill all of them. There's so many of them, right? Which is why you start to see people, a lot of fighters, they, they know some of their basics, especially with what they started as. Wrestlers know the basics of wrestling and stuff, but when they pick up striking, you see a lot of overhands, you see a lot of punches that a lot of boxers, for example, don't throw, a lot of kicks that Muay Thai fighters don't throw, or if they do throw, it's like very rare. You know, it's like they do it on purpose because it was a specific moment that they knew they can land it. In boxing, for an example, why do you think every single boxer practices their jab all the way from the first couple classes to the point where they retire? They never stop working on their jab. They never do. It's the most basic attack in combat sports. Yet, the best punchers in the world, they all drill it their entire lives. Because the better you can make your fundamentals, the better you can make your jab, straight right, straight left, depending on what stance you're in, lead hook, the better you can make all those different kind of hunches, the more success you usually will have. Or in Muay Thai, you know, the, the many different kicks that they throw. In Taekwondo, the many kicks that they throw. You know, there's many different things. I just see a lot of MMA fighters. Even when I train, I see a lot of MMA fighters. They try a lot of flash. They try to just go right to the advanced attacks before taking the basics, you know what I'm saying? Like Chris Wyman, for an example. He should have never thrown that wheel kick at Luke Rockle. That's a big example. 
right? In Taekwondo, you'll never throw that if you can't throw a sidekick or something. Like, it's a similar thing. There's steps involved. So I'm just saying in MMA, when you look at guys like TJ Cruz and Conor McGregor and stuff, it could be very easy to get right into that flash, you know, dive right into that part. And it can, of course, make things successful for you. But when the things get tough, when things go rough, that kind of stuff usually is not going to help you out. And trust me, man, I love Flash. I love throwing stuff like that. You know, I come from Taekwondo and I wasn't high level or anything like that. But I try a bunch of things. Even still, I try things on the bag. But I don't drill them more than I drill like basic working on a cut kick or working on a jab. You know, I don't drill two touches. I don't drill tornado kicks. I don't drill hopping back kicks, spinning elbows as much. I will do those because I love that stuff. But you got to know what's important as well. But great question. Then we'll go to at Treadstone. Do you think Whitman can will create a game plan to keep Gaethje's back off the cage against Habib? If he keeps it in the center, do you think his takedown defense is sufficient? Also, if Justin wins, who out of Habib and Tony has a higher chance of winning a rematch? I will never doubt Trevor Whitman, right? He's an amazing coach. He's very sharp. And even before the Justin Gaethje fight, I've always known how great of a coach he was because he changed Rose Nama Yunus the way she fights. She made her a very sharp striker. And I've heard him coach. I've heard him talk. He's super cerebral. Very sharp person. I think he will come up with a game plan to do so. But then again, he is more of a striking coach. He's not as much of a wrestling coach. He's a good MMA coach, but he doesn't specialize in that wrestling. So I believe it's going to be someone else that's also going to combine with Whitman's wisdom that's going to keep Gaethje's back off the cage. I do think they will come up with a game plan. I just don't think it's going to work. Everybody does. Everybody comes up with a game plan against Habib's takedowns and keep their back off the cage. He just gets them there. Like, it's the thing with GSP. Everybody knows a double leg is coming. Nobody can stop it. Nobody can stop it. Not even the best wrestlers in the sport. Johnny Hendricks couldn't even stop all of them. Like, and he's one of the best wrestlers to ever compete in MMA. It's that same thing, man. It's just different when you're in front of that bear, man. When that human bear is coming at you, things change. Now, Justin Gaethje, again, he has that mentality of war, and and he's very comfortable with that, which means he's going to be comfortable under pressure. So it might be a little bit different than your Conor McGregor, than your Etzimar Bolza, Michael Johnson. But I just, I think he's going to get backed up. Is he, what is he going to do? Engage Habib? He's going to run after Habib? Habib's going to go under for the legs. Even if it doesn't work, he's going to push Gaethje up to the cage. Because even though Gaethje's a high-level wrestler, he's an American wrestler, right? Habib doesn't wrestle like an American. You don't learn the way Habib wrestles in America. You just don't. Same way guys like Habib don't learn how Americans wrestle in Dagestan. He came to America, though. And he's training with DC and those guys, so now he knows. He has the information of both. He knows how Gaethje's going to wrestle. He knows. But Gaethje has never wrestled through a long period of time like someone like Habib. So Habib's in an advantage the fact that he went to America. And he has a completely different style. He was a high-level grappler over there in Dagestan. He became a higher-level grappler, higher-level wrestler when he came here to America and wrestled with some of the best wrestlers in the entire country. To the point where he can beat Ed Ruth in wrestling in the training room. Like... This is not your average guy. You know, I, I know Gaethje is a good wrestler. I just haven't seen enough to say that Gaethje can defend Habib's takedowns for the entire fight. I, I haven't seen it. Even in the center of the cage. Even if he de- defends the first initial takedown, that's not the threat. The threat is the next takedown. And then the next one after that. And then the next one after that. Habib doesn't stop. Again, he's not with that American traditional freestyle wrestler. It's a lot of explosion. He shoots. And if it fails, yeah, sometimes he'll try something. But in MMA, usually those freestyle wrestlers, they kind of stop their takedown because... The initial takedown is all the explosion. And they get sprawled on or something like that, right? Habib doesn't wrestle like that. Habib doesn't shoot to explode with all he has for that first takedown. He uses it to create contact. That's all he does. He's very good at doing that. 
And if you make a mistake when he grabs a single leg of yours, if you make a mistake with your balance, then he'll take you down in the center because it's just instinct. But all he's doing is putting you up against the cage. That's all he's going to do. And from there, nobody's better than Habib. Nobody. And as for a rematch, if Justin beats Habib, I think Habib has a better chance. But I got to see how the first fight goes. I think Habib beats Justin in the first fight. And here's the thing about cage work. When working against a wrestler against the cage or a grappler against the cage, such as someone on Habib's level, Habib has such a big advantage because he has pretty much created so many techniques against the cage that nobody else does. He's pretty much created his own martial art against the cage, and he's the only one that kind of does it. Fighters are now using what Habib does. They're actually copying things Habib does against the cage on the ground or standing up. Look at Alistair Overeem when he just fought Walt Harris. He went into that same position that Habib gets on everybody against the cage, but he just didn't have his legs locked up under the top leg of his opponent, where he's controlling one arm around the back, and he's tearing it down, landing punches, and the opponent's pretty much helpless. Alistair Overeem was doing that same thing. When a heavyweight, like Alistair Overeem, who's experienced as he is, he's been fighting longer than almost everybody in the UFC right now, and consistently at a high level, when he is picking things up of such a younger fighter in Habib, it just tells you how innovative Habib's style is. That's why it's so hard for people to get a grasp of what he's doing because things he's doing are things that they never learned before. And the only way they could learn is pretty much from Habib or people who train with him or watch his fights or something. And even if you're just watching his fights, you're probably not doing what he's doing at the same level. So that's the thing about him fighting Justin Gaethje. Yes, Justin may have good takedown defense, but it doesn't matter because his takedown defense is usually challenged at the center of the cage. Habib's takedowns aren't normally successful in the center of the cage, and they don't have to be, right? He's created this style where he just shoots on you in the center, and he doesn't really expect it to get you to the ground. As long as he can feel your resistance, he knows when it's going to be successful and when it's not. So if it's not successful because someone like Justin Gaethje has impeccable takedown defense in the center... He's just going to push him up against the cage. And now Justin Gaethje is fighting this style that he's never fought up against before or even prepared with in the training room to near that kind of level. You can bring in judo guys. You can bring in sambo artists. You can bring in Russians. They are not going to fight like Habib. None of them will. And even if they try, it's not going to be nearly the same kind of level. That's why these guys, when they feel him up against the cage, they're just shocked because they've never dealt with something like this before. Dustin Poirier is a black belt on the ground. Black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, he's a good wrestler. He didn't even know what to do. And he told his corner, I can't, I can't keep him off me. It, it was a state of pretty much confusion. Like, what do I do? When a fighter telling their coach, like, tell me what to do. What do I do here? And the coaches don't even know. <laughs> that happens with everybody. It happened with Conor McGregor. Edson Barboza had that thousand-yard stare that Jorgen described. They have no idea what to do against this guy against the gate. And it's the reason why I always talk about the Tony Ferguson fight because Tony is very innovative as well. He brings up and creates his own style and he could potentially with that artist of a mindset that he has to create new things and thinks of things in different ways, he could possibly come up with a solution that nobody else is thinking of because everybody's thinking of the same kind of thing when they're fighting Habib. Tony would probably thought of something different and that's why I was saying as well, Tony would probably be on a, on a mindset of no defense, just attack. If he grabs me, I'm attacking. If he puts me on the ground, I'm attacking. And that brings in a different thing against Habib's style, right? Because everybody's on the defense because they're so confused and they don't know what he's doing to them. Because again, you can count this as like its own martial art. It's like this own style that nobody knows. It doesn't really matter how good of a wrestler you are, to be honest. As long as you don't understand what Habib's doing against the cage, as long as you have never felt that before. And if your ground game, if you don't have an ability to get up from the bottom quick enough or 
technically enough, which I don't think Justin has. If you don't have that ability to get back up, if you get taken to the ground, Habib is just going to maul you. Like, that's just what's going to be, no matter who it is. And this is why someone like Josh Thompson, for an example, who's trained with Habib for a long time, he's even said it, man. He's like, nobody knows what to do to him. Like, even in the training room, nobody knows how to fight this guy. Nobody knows how to deal with his grappling. And it's why even someone as highly credentialed in wrestling as Justin Gaethje, even a guy like Josh Thompson says it doesn't matter. His credentials don't matter because he's not fighting that wrestler. He's not fighting a collegiate all-American wrestler. He's not fighting that kind of guy. It's like saying Muay Thai fighters in Thailand fight up against Dutch Muay Thai fighters. They're very different. Even though they're in the same kind of striking category, actually they're closer than Habib's wrestling grappling style to Justin Gaethje's American wrestling style. The Dutch and the, and the Thai style are actually a lot closer. That's still so much different. Look at the boxing styles. European boxing, especially from Ireland and especially from England, is very different than America as well, but still closer than what Habib does compared to Justin Gaethje. We're bringing up something like karate versus taekwondo. Very different depending which kind of karate, of course. But if you look at your traditional, maybe Shotokan karate, very different compared to Taekwondo. Like that's the sort of thing. They're both striking arts. They both use pretty much the same limbs. They're both striking, but very different. You can't say because this guy's a high level Shotokan fighter, he's going to be able to defeat a guy who probably didn't credential as high in Taekwondo but has innovated a Taekwondo style that the karate guys never saw up against before. And the Taekwondo guy has been training with Shotokan for a very long time. Who you think has an advantage? So that's the end of the podcast. I'm running out of time. Uh, if I missed your questions, I'll probably get to them in the next one. I will look back, especially for the Twitter questions, of course. And I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. And if you did, make sure to like, make sure to subscribe, make sure to follow wherever you're listening or watching this. It really helps with the podcast. And I'll see you guys next time.